Oh, Mr. Frodo, let's come out of the rain and come into this cave for a bit. Oh, Sam, I don't know. The world, it's looking so bleak. How can we go on? It's okay, Mr. Frodo. You just have to learn to trust reliable, peer-reviewed sources, and everything will make a lot more sense to you. I promise. Typical stupid habitses. As if there is even a reliable news source. But Smeagol, what do you mean? Social media is collecting your personal information and showing you news headlines that post leftist Gondorian agenda. I can't trust what I read online? Well, that's somewhat true, Mr. Frodo, but there's a much more nuanced perspective that you should take. No. There's only one perspective. It's that your information is being stolen, Master. And it's being all sent to Theoden Horsemaster. Or, as I would say, Theoden Truth Slayer. Oh no! Is this true, Sam? No, of course it's not true, Mr. Frodo. Master needs untraceable information, like Bitcoin. Now don't you be getting into that cryptocurrency talk there, Gollum. You're going to pollute Frodo's mind and he's already taken on such a burden. Hey, Sam, back off. You don't know what it's like to go through the world always condemned and belittled for your views and who you are. But Mr. Frodo, sir... Crypto bros like to say that they're going to democratize information and finances, but it turns out that it just replicates the standard capitalist system where a small percentage controls the vast majority of the wealth. I don't even know what Bitcoin is. It doesn't matter what it is. Investing in Bitcoin is very smart. It is on the blockchain. It has to be safe, master. Oh, that does sound good to me, Smeagol. No, Mr. Frodo! He's polluting your mind! Do not listen to the stupid one, Master. I'll tell you what is polluting your mind. The leftist agenda pushed by the social justice warriors telling us to get the vaccine poison of man. Oh, oh no. They are filling our veins with the 5G, what? which turns us gay when mixed with the chemtrails in with the me. air. Come over here. Mr. Frodo, I told you, you can't trust a word he says. His mind has been corrupted by the ring. I think you're right, Sam. He's too far gone. It's difficult to find reliable sources, Mr. Frodo. But if you take a while to look inside your heart, you'll get a, a sense of what's right and true. Oh, Sam, I can always rely on you to help guide the way. Maybe we should go back before he notices we're gone. I got carried away again. Anyways, the the takeaway is you should take the Morador male enhancement hobbits' pillsies. This is too far now, Gollum! I'm gonna finish ya! Oh, God! So much for the tolerant left. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
Hello, fantasy fans, and welcome to Swords and Satire, the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Mulkel, here with my legendary co-hosts. I'm Chelsea Hollowell, a wood elf that just likes to make leaf-based handicrafts and sell them at the local market called Trade Blanket. And how's that working out for you? You know, not good. Uh, there's a lot of other elven folk making leaf-based handicrafts, I gotta say. There's a lot of, uh, it's a flooded market. It's, it's difficult. That's tough. Have you ever considered using something other than leaves? I don't get it. What do you mean? What else is there? Fair enough. Amazing. Very beautiful culture. (laughs) And who am I? My name is Jack Olander, a corrupted hobbit whose uh, favorite song I always sing, the only song I ever sing, and I sing often, uh, it's a little something called Shmeep by Shmadiohead. <laughs> so, is the fact that you're incredibly tall also part of being a corrupted hobbit? Yes. That makes sense. That is that is the corruption, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. <laughs> Shmeep. <laughs> Well, guys, we've got a new year for Swords and Satire here, and to kick off that new year, besides our new series on The Witcher that we're doing every other week, we are completing a film trilogy that we began in 2021. That's right. I'm super excited, and I'm look- I can't wait to talk about all of the cool stuff that happens in this movie. I'm also super stoked to talk about this, but... We have a little bit of bookkeeping before that, because before we start talking about the movie, we need to talk about our patrons. Our patrons? Who are they? Why, they're the lovely, talented, and glorious people who go to patreon.com slash swords and satire and support us every month. They help us keep the torches lit here at Castle Satire. That's awesome. What do they get for that? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) We have tons of extra episodes that are patron exclusive, and patrons can vote on a movie that we watch every month. Wow, that's perfect. That sounds awesome. Yeah, in fact, if you sign up this week, you'll still have time to vote on our next book-based movie that we're watching as a follow-up to this film. But what film are we talking about this week? Why, it is none other then the Lord of the Rings, the return of the king. Doesn't matter if I voted for him or not. <laughs> Thank you, patrons. You all have perfect bodies and souls. <laughs> all right. Well, enough shilling for ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> I'm ready to start talking about 2003's absolutely epic film, The Return of the King. At this point, you know all the deets. Directed by Peter Jackson, starring just everybody who was everybody in 2003. Yeah. We've got Viggo Mortensen. We've got Sir Ian McKellen. Sean Bean. Nope. I mean, maybe a little bit, but he died in the first one. He's given a cameo. They replay his death scene. Oh, that's fair. Uh, Let's see. Christopher Lee. 
Uh, not featured in this version. Uh-oh, did we watch the theatrical cut where Christopher Lee was not put in the film? Oopsie. Uh-oh, <laughs> Oopsie someone, someone did a little poop. <laughs> and we should probably also mention Elijah Wood, Sean Astin, Andy Serkis, who I think played every background environment, too. Yeah. So versatile. It's really amazing the way he got that lava to look like it was flowing. He just loosened his body so that it became an elemental state and just flowed like glowing hot magma. Oh, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, I hear the CGI suits they put on. They really struggled to contain that one. (laughs) So I've got so much I want to talk about with this film. But before we do, I think Chelsea has a little summary ready to go. That's right. So we are continuing our story here in The Return of the King with Sam and Frodo being led into Mordor by Gollum or Smeagol. Now, if moviegoers were coming into this film as their first experience with The Lord of the Rings, would any of this make any sense to them? No. (laughs) you definitely have to have seen the other ones so in a way it's kind of like the lord of the rings of the original cinematic universe it's true incredible (laughs) and to any listeners who skipped the first two episodes and came straight to this one why (laughs) why did you do that (laughs) answer your phone or computer now I mean, if you want, you can pause this episode, go back to our episode on the Fellowship of the Ring, listen to that, laugh your ass off, tell all your friends and family, go to the next episode that we covered, The Two Towers, rinse and repeat, and then come back here, same high bar. Welcome back, listener. I hope you liked those two episodes. So anyway... Sam and Frodo are being led into Mordor by Gollum, or Smeagol. And uh, along the way, there's some infighting. Frodo is really struggling at this point to contain the power of the ring. And, uh, spoilers, Gollum betrays them and tries to feed them to Shelob. Also, I mean, Gollum and Smeagol are having a really rough relationship patch right now. It's true. Gollum's saying some really mean things to Smeagol. Yeah, poor Smeagol. I mean, he wants to be a good boy. He wants to be the best boy. He is not the best boy. And Gollum is just the worst. But so, yeah, Frodo is captured briefly, but Sam comes back after their tiff and decides to help Frodo and save him. They continue into Mordor without Gollum. But he catches up eventually. (laughs) Yeah. And, um... Yeah, they they travel through. They're helped by their friends. We'll get back to that in a moment. Uh, it's it's remote work, but uh, the original work from home. If home is the battlefield, right? It is for me. Um, they struggle to get up the mountain. Gollum catches up to them. They're struggling. Frodo scrambles up. He gets in to the furnace, into the heart of the volcano through the doorway is about to drop the ring in, and then he's like, wait a minute, I'm corrupt now, so I actually want to keep this. It's mine. It's mine. Seems like a trend with people taking the ring up to a Monomarth to drop it into the fire, but 
They just can't pull the trigger. That's when the ring turns it up to 11. That's how you know. You're in trouble. Um, he disappears. Gollum knows how to find him. Bites his fucking finger. Frodo's fucking finger off. Frodo's fucking finger. They struggle. He's pushed over the ledge. Gollum is with the ring. He tries to terminator the ring into the air while he's going into the lava. Uh, now, remember that the Terminator was willingly going into the lava. <laughs> okay. Molten metal. Then the ring kind of tries to not die. It or puts up melted, a good effort. But then it eventually sinks into the lava and is destroyed. Doesn't it take like a whole cutaway for the ring to actually melt? A yeah. whole cutaway? Don't they? Like they go to another scene and then come back. Not sure how much time passed in between that. Yeah. But it maybe it just feels like an eternity. At minimum, the ring was on the lava like 15 seconds before sinking in. Probably much more than that. But that's just what's happening at the forefront of this adventure. There's actually a lot going on behind the scenes. Is this the most important storyline? Meh, maybe. So the rest of the fellowship actually meets up together again with the help of Gandalf. Oh, classic Gandalf. Gandalf. They all head over to to Theoden's Hall in Rohan. But before they left the wizard's tower, Pippin found a Palantir. And then Gandalf takes it away from him. But in Theoden's Hall, Pippin sneaks it back and causes all kinds of mischief. Fucking Pippin. Creating this whole catalyst where he and Gandalf have to go to Gondor and go to the White City to warn Denethor, the steward ruling there, about an incoming threat of the orc army. Now, Denethor, he's uh, related to somebody, right? Oh, yeah. Boromir and Faramir. He's their, like, terrible father. (laughs) But so they have a siege. The orc army comes in. There's a siege going on. Denethor is full crazy at this point. Not half crazy. And uh, Gandalf takes over and helps lead the troops in, in defending the siege. A little bit of a people's revolution. Faramir is almost killed during part of this battle. But then he's saved. Well, his father sends him into the vanguard to protect a... Basically fallen city, but he's really just trying to get his own son killed. And he almost succeeds. And actually, Gandalf has to save Faramir from Denethor trying to uh, martyr both of them. It's just one of those living cremations. Right. Very common. We all know what that means. But So they he and uh, Pippin save him. On another front, Thaden, along with Aragorn and crew... Gather the Rohirrim to help aid Gondor because they actually saw that Gondor is calling for aid. Little subterfuge on Pippin and Gandalf's part. (laughs) Classic wizard move. Lighting the beacons when the steward doesn't want you to. On the eve of battle, Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas leave to go find more allies of the undead sort. Spooky ghost allies? That's right. And in the version we watched, 
He just talks them into it, and then suddenly they're there on the battlefield later. <laughs> well, we see him roll up on a ship and, uh, you true. know, take over, take down a army of, gar- uh, I was going to say goblins. <laughs> so, goblins and orcs? Gorklins. <laughs> the orcs think they're going to be taking over Gondor because they got through the first line of defenses and they're all cocky. But then that's when the Rohirrim and the undead flank them from either side and help win that battle, help save the White City. But then they realize, fuck, we can't rest on our laurels. I love resting on my laurels. Come on. Aragorn's like, guys, we have to do one more battle and we're probably going to die. But if it means Frodo succeeds, we got to do it. So they go to the Black Gate and taunt the uh, orc army to come out just to give Frodo a diversion, just to create a diversion so that Frodo and Sam, who they know are trying to sneak into Mordor, might have safe passage. This is Aragorn's hold my beer moment. This is the time before time. There were no cell phones. <laughs> they, really? They couldn't check in with each other. They just had to hope and trust that they were doing the right thing. No, Gandalf has some way of knowing that um, Frodo has made it to Mount Doom. No. I thought Once I th- they went into Mordor and they were discussing it in the court, he said they went beyond his sight. So this gambit paid off and they lure all the armies out of Mordor to fight them at the Black Gate. Bring it back a little bit. That's when Sam and Frodo did make it to Mount Doom, like we said. And that's how they were able to sneak across. And once the ring actually does melt, everybody knows it because the tower that the Eye of Sauron is like chilling on top of just starts crumbling down to the ground. That's how I know it's time to go to work, too. Right. It's a very interesting alarm system you have set up. And elaborate. And expensive. (laughs) And once it hits the ground, the eye dissipates and his spirit and influence are gone forever. Croaking out one last, fuck you guys! (laughs) The lands of Mordor collapse and uh, the orc armies flee in terror. And most of Aragorn and the other adventuring party... And their troops are, survived that. But there were a lot of casualties. So after this, there's like a million endings. But basically, the eagles help them. And Frodo and Sam are saved from the lava flow. And they get back to the Shire. Sam ends up marrying Rosie. They have kids. Frodo's like, I finished my book now. But I can't live in this world after everything I've seen. So he goes to the Grey Havens. Guess I'll just die. (laughs) So he goes to the Grey Havens with the elves, their last remaining elves, including Elrond. And they actually leave with Bilbo as well. And they're going to Valinor, the Undying Lands, where they can live in peace forever. But Bilbo would like to hold that ring of his one more time. It's true, but it's kind of lost. So he's shit out of luck. You lost my fucking ring, you shithead! He's probably going to be bugging Frodo about that in the afterlife forever. (laughs) Do you have that ring? No, Bilbo, I told you ten minutes ago. Oh, okay. What about my old ring? Do you have that? No, Bilbo. (laughs) 
<laughs> I defeated Smog. It was Smaug, Bilbo. I did it with that old ring. Hey, wait. No, God. <laughs> Please. Does he still have dementia in the end <laughs> You hope not. You <laughs> hope not. And hope's the operative word. Yes. Hope not. Well, that was an amazing summary. It's probably time to head into the delve. Welcome to the Delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, and lore of The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. And Chelsea, I know that you've got something that you've been hoping to talk about this whole time. Oh, yeah. It is hope. (laughs) 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 It's a theme that goes throughout all of the movies and the books, too, and it's this idea of hope carrying you through. And it's kind of like hope in the face of despair and destruction or certain destruction. And the way it's talked about, it's kind of talked about that level of hope when you shouldn't have any, when you have no cause to really hope. It's real. It's kind of like a form of belief or having faith. It's like a fatalistic determination that even if, you're going to lose everything, including possibly your life. If you are on a path of doing the right thing, you have to keep doing it. And you can't let doubt cloud your mind. Yeah, when you're doing something as risky and dangerous as that, you can't doubt yourself too much or you're just bound to fail. Like some level of, you need to have some level of confidence in your own capabilities. Which is helped by having hope in yourself and in in your endeavors to even have a chance of, like, pulling it off. Right. I mean, the whole idea of a hobbit successfully completing an adventure, like in the original book, The Hobbit, or getting to Mount Doom through the lands of Mordor that are literally hostile naturally and because of its... Inhabitants. Inhabitants, it's populace, is supposed to be like, oh, this could never happen. So, you know, the Lord of the Rings is very much about things being accomplished that shouldn't be able to be accomplished. Yeah, and going back to the Fellowship when Frodo took the ring in the Council of Elrond, when he went to that meeting and he said he would take it. When he flipped the table and said, fuck all of y'all. I'm taking this <laughs> ring. None of you are going to stop me. Now who's coming with me? Yeah. Verbatim quote from the film. <laughs> <laughs> Tell them you're the ring bearer and they got to deal with it. I. <laughs> <laughs> Gandalf backs him up, even though he's like, fuck, I wish he hadn't said anything. Because um, he knows that, first of all, Frodo can do it, and that hobbits seem to have, like, some kind of preternatural ability to resist the ring. I think it's because, like, usually they don't have any ambition. (laughs) (laughs) They're quaint rural folk. You know, real salt of the earth. Yeah. Salt of the Middle Earth. Well, they're inherently optimistic and hopeful, right? Yeah. That's true. They are very pleased with very little. So greed isn't one of their main driving forces. Like a dwarf. 
(laughs) (laughs) Say I'm wrong. Say I'm wrong. Dwarves in Middle Earth actually have something called, like, what, gold sickness or dragon sickness, where they just become, like, triple greedy. Yeah, these are fantastical creatures that have, yeah, these mythological illnesses that they can acquire. (laughs) Yes, hobbits are, like, slightly predispositioned to be satisfied with less, it seems like. Yeah, they they have simple tastes. But ravenous tastes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> For a second breakfast. <laughs> they love to eat. Who doesn't? Yeah, it's true. Eating? I do that every day. Privileged. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> uh, kind of, yeah. <laughs> But also, Gandalf knows that Frodo is brave. He wants to, like, build up Frodo's confidence in being able to do this kind of thing. But also... It's called the secret, Frodo. You just have to believe and it will come to you. Oh, my God. They make the point that a small creature like a hobbit is capable of more than people give them credit for. And they're diminutive stature actually might be an advantage on letting them sneak into Mordor, which seems to be the case. No one will be looking for a hobbit. They'll be looking for a human or a dwarf or an elf. Or one of those other fantasy races. (laughs) But so we see a few characters who kind of like carry the hope along for the rest of the group or for the populace. And so Sam is one of those Oh, Sam. Characters. He has one of the hardest jobs because he has to have hope in the face of utter despair and darkness that Frodo exists in on a daily basis because of his contact with the ring. And he has to deal with Frodo's constant whining. Yeah, it's true. And he's always lifting his spirits and like encouraging him to go on. He plans ahead for their return trip home. If that's not hope, I don't know what is. Oh, dude, great point. The ring can corrupt some people the second it enters their field of view. Yes, it's true. They don't even have to touch it. Yeah, remember Boromir licking his lips at the Council of Elrond? Or what about... Smeagol. Yeah, that's right. The second Smeagol sees that his friend has the ring, he instantly becomes murderous, like you said, Jamie. Yeah, you know, Smeagol and his buddy, Deagle. Yeah, his best friend. Yes, they're best friends. The one he calls my love. That's how you know they're best friends. Like Achilles and Patroclus, best (laughs) friends. (laughs) I thought it was sort of weird they cut the scene where Saruman is killed, but they kept the 45-minute sex scene between Smeagol and Deagle. (laughs) It was important for building plot and character. I mean, what else are best friends gonna do together? Yeah, when they look each other in the eye in that scene and say, you're my best friend, and the other one says, I know. (laughs) (laughs) You're my birthday present. Yes. But also, I'm going to kill you for this ring. Yeah. Tale as old as time. We've all been there. (laughs) Jesus, this movie's dark. I know. So the ring can corrupt you instantly, right? Potentially. Frodo has this ring for a very long time. Yes, he does. So him complaining, I'll give him a a pass. That's fair. That's fair. If, If the timeline of the books is to be believed... 
the movies make it seem like, oh, maybe Frodo's been on the road for a few weeks or something. It is months or years. Years. Like, he has the ring for years before he even leaves the Shire in the books. And he's never tempted to use it in the 20 years that he owns it before he, in the books before he takes off on this adventure. And then in the books, they stop in places like Rivendell for, like, months at yeah. a time to rest and relax. Yeah, they get there in the winter and they plan to leave again in the spring when the weather's better for travel. <laughs> so it's fair that he has had this massively corrupting influence with him for a tremendously long time. And when it leaves his possession, he's not tempted to try to reclaim it. He's relieved. When they take it from him, when he puts it down at the council, he just sighs a sigh of relief. Yeah, so this thing is tormenting him, like, all the time. And it's Sam's job to be that, like, shining light, yes. the grounding presence. That's like, hey, Mr. Frodo, remember the Shire? And Frodo's like, oh, yeah, the Shire rules. And then there's the sad part at, on Mount Doom. Yeah. Where he's like, oh, is Frodo, remember the Shire and, like, the grass and all the music and fun games? And Frodo's like, I don't remember... I don't remember the sound of water or, like, the taste of food. Yeah, that's brutal. He yeah. can't remember any of the, like, simple joys of life that he used that used to be all he needed, right? He's just in complete, utter despair, has lost all hope. There's a great detail in the costume design or in the makeup design where Frodo has the ring on a chain and he's got scars on his neck where the chain touches his skin, either from like an actual physical weight of the ring pulling down or like maybe he's just always tugging on the chain, like unknowingly just digging into his own flesh. It seems to be a little bit of both. I've always, since the first time I saw this film, I thought that was an awesome detail. Yeah. It's always stuck out in my head. Yeah, it really makes it seem extra painful. It helps you understand the internal anguish he's going through. It's literally, if you knew nothing about the movie, and you just came in for those scenes, and you saw those wounds on his shoulders, you'd be like, oh god, he should take that thing off. Yeah, He should not have that. And in the books... He is such a good boy. <laughs> Yay. That he and Sam never actually fight. But that doesn't make a good movie, right? I guess not. At least um Peter and Fran didn't think so. And Philippa, let's not yeah. let's put blame and credit where blame and credit are due. No, I mean I I would prefer a story in Hollywood someday where friends don't have to fight. But it does help build tension for the film. Yeah. And then he can make a heroic return to save Frodo. Good point. Which reinforces um, like kind of the effects of the ring and how it's make causing strife around it. So they needed a way to show that. I get that. And then it shows like how well hobbits can withstand its corrupting influence because Sam is able to rally himself and go back. Well, also, great point of character detail, Sam steals the ring from Frodo when they break up. Yeah. Which and is awesome. Yeah, it's actually, I had forgotten about that. Sam comes back, he's like, well, actually, I, I've got the ring, so, like, you got kidnapped by those goblins, and 
stabbed by Shelob, but eh, I kind of took it, and I, I can give it back to you. Sam has no compulsion to keep the ring. Like, Frodo doesn't trust him, or he has very little compulsion. Sam has very little compulsion to keep the ring. He is much more concerned with protecting Frodo, his friend. That's true. He, yeah. he does struggle a little bit, but then he gives it back pretty quickly. It's true. That That's a really interesting scene where Sam and Frodo both want the ring to a degree and also are looking out for the other person. Because at first, Sam seems like, oh, I don't want to give it back to you because I've seen you suffer with this for a long time. Right. I wondered how much of it was that. And then there was a little flicker in him that's like, also, I maybe I want it. Right. <laughs> and Frodo is initially like, give me my fucking ring. That's my ring. Oh, my God. Oh, my fucking. And then <laughs> and then he sort of is taken back when he starts seeing that reaction in Sam where he's like, oh, Sam, you don't want that. It's my burden to bear. Yeah. I mean, let, let's not lie. Sam is one of the greatest characters in the entire trilogy. But he's no Tom Bombadil. He can't just give up the ring with no compulsion. It's true. <laughs> but let's talk about this for a second, because this juxtaposes nicely with the struggle between Smeagol and Deagle, because their friendship and love for each other is so strong that Sam and Frodo are just kind of having an argument but then they make up and they're friends again and they're helping each other and they, they save each other's lives multiple times. When Smeagol and Deagle had it, they started fighting with each other right away and Smeagol fucking killed his friend. So, um, <laughs> betrayal. I think it, Sam and Frodo's relationship, even though they argue still shows nicely, like, this idea of a, like a positive male friendship and form of masculinity. 100% I agree. That's actually a fantastic theme that is evident through every one of these movies. Male friendships in the Lord of the Rings trilogy and in the films are portrayed in a very positive way that is open and caring and men can express their love for each other without feeling awkward about it. I think there's scenes where Aragorn like kisses some of the other members of the fellowship on the head or something yeah. like that. Going back to some of the previous movies, but like yeah. there's a great, I'm going to say healthy masculinity that is present throughout all these films. Yeah. The ability to express emotions to each other, whether they are out of love or frustration and then either show support for each other or work out their frustrations together and not have it be lingering or have to turn to violence every time. And, uh, yeah, I like what you said, Jamie. It's like a healthy form of friendship and masculinity, which I appreciate. Yeah, I think that there's an aspirational quality to the relationships throughout The Lord of the Rings. Friendships that are deep and caring and don't have to be rooted in cynicism or sarcasm. They don't, there is like a little bit of that between Legolas and Gimli who become best friends despite deep, deep rooted cultural biases and racial animus for each other. It's true. They've been trained by their respective cultures to think negatively about the other and to look down upon them 
and uh, with the, which is ethnocentric, and which is thinking that your culture is better than another's culture, and not thinking about another culture from their point of view. And so, through their friendship, they're able to realize how all those stereotypes are probably wrong and they're able to become friends. Yeah. I mean, there's a line in this movie where Gimli says, I never thought I'd die fighting next to an elf. And Legolas just goes, what about a friend? And Gimli's like, I, that's okay. I'm like, Oh, that's sweet. Like, I know it's, I know it's rooted in these like stereotypes that are kind of tired now, but that's a sweet scene. Yeah. And so this, theme does carry over from the books pretty well, but something that Philippa and Peter adapted for the movies was a larger role for some of the female characters, like Arwen and Eowyn. They did the best they could with very little material, and while trying to probably not completely rewrite like the main members of the Fellowship. Right. And That's been the case throughout all three movies. They've had a larger role than they did in the books, and it carries through to this movie, too. And I appreciate that, of course. I like more diversity in a movie. Uh, It's nice to have more perspectives shared, and it's still not a lot of diversity. No. (laughs) Along, like, gender or racial lines, but... It's still more than that existed in the books. Uh, So they they did something (laughs) with that. So Arwen, basically, in the movie, she has like a somewhat more agency. She does. She's not just going along with what her father wanted. And you kind of see the journey she goes on internally and like visions that she has for why she decides to not go to the Undying Lands and to go back to Aragorn. And... She is sadly very sparsely present in the theatrical cut of this movie. It's true. For a plot line that's supposed to be, like, one of the most important ones for Aragorn, who is a major character in this film, he's literally the titular king. Yes. Arwen is, like, there in two scenes. And I think says maybe three words in the entire film or three lines in the entire film. Yeah. And the, in, in the extended cut, I think I remember like they actually like have a dream together and they get to talk. Yeah. But in this one, she does, it does kind of show her having more agency kind of arguing with her dad, Elrond and um, like having more autonomy with what path she takes. So I appreciated that. And then Eowyn, along with Mary, I think are kind of more feminist and queer icons. All right, let's talk about it. Yeah. So Eowyn, not only does she have more autonomy, she is also stubborn and she is more self-actualized than she is in the books, that's for sure. I mean, in the book, she is the one who fells the witch king along with mary i'm pretty sure i mean no man can do it right Mm -hmm. but in the books as far as i remember it's just kind of like a reveal during the battle that she's the one killing him and 
in the movie, it shows more of the journey that she goes on and kind of her struggles between her duty to her people and what she wants for herself. Yeah, I mean, Eowyn ends up being one of the kind of most important characters in this movie, despite being relegated to kind of a side plot. Yeah. She has one of the most significant character arcs where she starts out the film thinking that her and Aragorn might actually be able to have a relationship, moving on beyond that, wanting to go to war and helping the Rohirrim fight against the forces of Mordor, being told she can't, Mulaning her way into <laughs> the front line, and then killing one of the biggest threats in the movie. Yeah, I mean, she doesn't let her disappointment at not having a romantic relationship with Aragon like just completely crush her. Also a nice touch that they don't end up together and they can still be buds. Yeah, and she's just like, okay, well, I'm going to do something else that's meaningful to me. I'm going to protect my people <laughs> and actually have... I'm going to go murder this Nazgul <laughs> right in the fucking face. I'm going to have a more active role in in the events of this age. Yeah, I mean, it's actually interesting to me because we don't see Sauron ever come back with a physical body after the intro to the Fellowship. So in a lot of ways, the Witch King is like a physical stand-in for Sauron and kind of the most impressive enemy in the entire film series. Yeah, he is kind of like Sauron's surrogate in the world, his eyes and ears. Yeah, and we get this like suiting up sequence where he's getting his helmet and his weapons and stepping onto his giant fucking winged beast that he rides and like we see the ring rays just tearing through the forces of Gondor and Eowyn fucking kills this dude along with Mary's uh stab to the thigh. Yeah, she stabs him right through his face hole. <laughs> yeah. Which is fatal, I think, but... Yeah, usually. He, like, turned into light? Yeah, his helmet started to kind of crack itself in and, like, collapse. He imploded just a little bit. Yeah, and he blows up in a big <laughs> ball of light. You know, like when anybody dies. Right. It's just clean like that. No mess. Yeah. Um... Yeah, she couldn't have done it without Mary's help, which I think is pretty cool. And she, Eowyn always believed in Mary's ability and right to go to battle. Yes. His right to choose his own path. His diminutive size shouldn't preclude him from being able to have an impact. And to some extent, she is talking to Mary and herself. Right. As somebody who's been told, you can't do these things because... You're a woman. Right. She even has a sweet moment with her uncle Theoden where it's complicated, right? Because Theoden's saying, you can't go to war, but if I die, you're going to be queen. Like, I'm yeah. passing this on to you. Not to your brother, Aemir. And not to some other male cousin or R something. Right. So, like, in Theoden's eyes, he is being supportive of her. Right. It's not what she wants. And I don't think normally... Uh female would be chosen to be the next heir. So Theoden was kind of breaking the rules already because he believes in her so much. She does go back to rule the Rohirrim. They don't show that in the movie. Right. I mean, there was only so many endings you can have in a single movie. She and Faramir are kind of like palling it up together 
as a married couple, that is. Because they, they bone down. <laughs> That's hype. I support that. But they also don't show that in the movie. Oh, missed opportunity. Yeah. We get a we get a three hour Smeagol sex scene, <laughs> but we don't get to see Faramir and Ale. Ridiculous. It's just not fair. It's not. Chelsea, you also alluded to a queer reading of the death of the Witch King at the hands of Eowyn and Mary. Well, not necessarily in that moment, but that Mary and Pippin are also best friends, and I feel like they could be read as like a gay couple. It's one possible reading. Sure. And they're also kind of atypical heroes. They kind of have their own sense of identity than the norm, and um, even amongst their own people. And I think that that status as being kind of non-conforming is kind of how I read that queerness into it. Got it. And also he and Pippin's relationship. Right. Seems very close to me. And under another author, they could have been a couple. Right. Not everybody has to be a couple, like we're saying. Like People can just be friends and be close and, and be open with their expression of you know, affection for one another, but it, it's it's another reading of their relationship. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of ways to read relationships throughout the film, and I mean, that is an interesting one to me, and it does seem like there is text in the film to support that reading. So I like how in the fight that saves Mordor and the bastion of hope for human civilization is a female warrior and a queer hobbit. <laughs> I, I love think it. that's great. Big yeah. fan of that. I I just really felt like that spoke to me and gave me hope personally. <laughs> well, that's very nice. Love it. I like the interpretation that you know, people can be heroes and they may be unlikely or you may not expect great things from, you know, different types of people of all shapes and sizes. And like it reinforces not to judge a book by its cover. That is nice. And, you know, we've pointed out that these are films without a lot of diversity in general. But the bits that we get about people who don't conform to traditional like tough guy hero roles. You know, we can appreciate those details in a movie like this or in a film series like this. Now, we talked about friendship. I think it's also important that we need to talk about betrayal because it's an important theme in this film as well. True. I mean, we start with a scene of the ultimate betrayal when Smeagol kills Deagle for the ring. We've also got... Frodo's fear of being betrayed by Sam as they're on their way to Mount Doom. And we have the dead men of Dunharrow who are people who betrayed the last king and are living as the undead because of that betrayal that they committed hundreds or thousands of years ago. Mm -hmm. I think there might be one more betrayal as well. I think the other betrayal could be Denethor, the steward. Because he's gone insane, and he sends Faramir, his only living son, 
to what is his certain doom, effectively. absolutely. And he literally tells Faramir that he wishes he had died instead of Boromir. Yeah. Yep. And uh, Faramir is like, uh, maybe if I return from this, you'll, like, think better of me. And he says, it depends how you come back. Yeah. He's basically saying, maybe daddy will love me if I go get myself killed in battle. Yeah. And then his dad is like, yeah, maybe. (laughs) We'll play it by ear. (laughs) It's Oh, man, that's a great point. And it's a complicated one because in a weird way, Denethor does regret it. Yeah, he like, does. When Faramir comes back, Denethor is lucid is not the word because he refuses to see that Faramir is actually still alive. Yeah. When yeah. Pippin tells him he's st- he's okay, we can bring him back, we just need a healer. Denethor is like, nope, we're going to go uh, create a pyre and I'm going to lay down on it with my son who's dead. And that's that. And it's horrifying but also a really interesting dynamic where, in a way, that is Denethor's only time he's ever expressed concern for his son in the story that we're seeing in front of us. He's also literally been corrupted, right? Yes. Supernaturally. Through the Palantir and Saruman and Sauron's influence through it. That's another detail that doesn't get shown in the theatrical cut of the movie, that he has a direct kind of line to Sauron. It's true. So maybe it's betrayal, but I don't know if it exactly counts because it's really not him at this point. Right. It's like some corrupted version of him. Yeah. Yeah. Or twisted or, or just manipulated. So most of the betrayals that happen in the story have to do with either Sauron or the ring. Naturally. And it really comes down to, like, it. those things create or encourage some of the darker aspects in a person, like giving into fear or greed or hatred. It's like the dark side. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, anger leads to hate and so on and so forth. Right. And that's how you get ants. (laughs) Mm. is that how that line goes yeah from that beloved film star wars (laughs) yeah i i think that you know the ring standing in as kind of a symbol of people's corruption and fear and ability to be swayed and manipulated by the will of others or misled Mm -hmm. you know the ring is not just a object with no will, right? Yeah. The ring is connected to Sauron. So it's not the ring that is doing a terrible thing to people. It is somebody behind it. It's both Sauron and separate from him. Yeah. It amplifies Sauron's will, but has an, like a darker will of its own, too. It has a desire to get back to Sauron. Yeah. And it can act on its own in subtle ways. But I think the important detail is that it is something with agency in a a weird way. Or maybe not agency, but its own desires. So it is a stand-in for the corrupting influence of other people. I think so. I think that's a pretty accurate reading. Like, I don't think it's the typical 
fantasy trope of like a thing is inherently evil because of dark magic, such and such. It's like, no, Sauron is a dude. I mean, he's a powerful godlike being, but he has an evil will that he exerts on others. It's true. It, it's not so detached from real world, I'll say evils, as a lot of other stand-ins for the same kind of concept in other fantasy films. Well, guys, before we move on, there's just one more thing I want to talk about, and that is the myth of the benevolent king. So, don't get me wrong. Aragorn is probably my favorite character in the entire Middle-earth narrative and stories. Love Aragorn. Love Viggo Mortensen's portrayal of him. Love him in the books. He's got some of my favorite lines in the books. You know, uh, where Frodo says, I would expect that a servant of the Dark Lord would look fair and feel foul. And Aragorn laughs and says, Ah, so you're saying that I look foul but feel fair. Yeah. Great stuff. But I cannot watch a film like this or read The Lord of the Rings and not realize that there is a very specific worldview that is being expressed through Tolkien's writing, which is this idea of a past glory that existed in the before times where men were heroes. There's a heroic age that is lost to us. It's a romanticization of the past. Exactly. And and again, like this idea that there is a rightful king who is ordained by the gods or whatever, who will rule the people with kindness and fairness and never be corrupted. And the fact of the matter is, no time like that ever existed in prehistory. Stop lying to yourself. Yeah. I'm not saying that maybe somewhere along the line there wasn't a ruler who was pretty good to their people or was okay to their people or who wasn't a complete murderous sociopath. Right. But there wasn't some era of great old kings who had the best intentions for their people and created utopian worlds for them. Yeah. A power structure like that does not exist. Yeah. What I'm saying is this movie might lack a little bit of class consciousness. <laughs> Just saying, I didn't see a lot of farms around Gondor or uh, Rohan. There are scenes on farmlands, actually, where they're being burned down by orcs. In the second movie. And the people are yes. just nameless and faceless, basically. Yeah. I'm just not sure if uh, a utopian government is possible <laughs> in that scenario. Yeah, it's hard to say. Now, Aragorn's an interesting case, of course, right? He rejected nobility up to a point. He gave up his claim to the throne of Gondor. That's why Denethor is sitting on the throne. He's sitting in wait of a king to return. He's basically says in the movie, like, I'm not just going to abdicate my rulership of Gondor because there's rumors that the true king is back. I believe something he said was like along the lines of to some barbarian from the north or something like that. Oh, yeah. Ranger from the north, yeah. But that was the way he said ranger. You can tell he meant barbarian. It's true. But yeah, so I mean, 
at the end of the movie, we have this big coronation. All the people are so happy that Aragorn and Arwen are getting married. Everybody's just living it up because Aragorn's such a great and lovable guy. And again, within the fiction of the film, I agree. But this is not rooted in a real-world perspective of what monarchy looks like. Right. It also continues the idea of a sovereign monarch. Yes. Gandalf is literally an angel. True. That's true. Gandalf did not respect the person who was holding the throne. Mithrandir, please. Mithrandir? <laughs> he kicks the last guy's ass twice. <laughs> yes. In this film. Never undermines him the whole time. Yeah. Undermines him the whole time. Sees completely fit to take over the military during the conflict. It's a coup. Yeah, he yeah. commits a coup. And who is giving Aragorn the crown and throne but Gandalf? Yeah. <laughs> That's a really good point. Who's just like, yeah, I have the authority to do this. <laughs> And nobody stops him. Yeah, everyone is like, oh, shit, he's Gandalf. Gandalf with a whole can of worms. I don't even think we have time to discuss all of the subterfuge, deception, and flat-out lies that he uses to uh, get the ends that he wants. Now, granted, I support um, taking down the Dark Lord. Yeah. Gandalf, or Mithrandir, is kind of like Odin. In that way. Very much so. Oh, yeah. Modeled at least partially off of the one-eyed god himself. It's true. Huh. The, especially Gandalf the Grey in his grey traveling cloak and hat. Mm-hmm. Grimnir-like. Yes. Yes. Somebody who uses magic and subterfuge, but is also willing to go to battle. And of course, the name Gandalf is from Norse mythology. Along with all the dwarves from The Hobbit. That's true. But yeah, there is this wistfulness for a lost past that exists in the text of The Lord of the Rings that is repeated throughout history in our real world in a great deal of the mythologies that people tell about their own cultures and the way that their societies, you know are today versus how they were in some nebulous, idealized past. And that, yeah, like you're saying, that tendency to want to look at the past with rose-colored glasses is still a thing today. Um, Maybe more so than ever, I don't know. Yeah, it's true. And um, it's a way that people kind of mythologize the past to legitimize the present. In some ways. Right. Or... Or to, to say that the present is, like, fallen or corrupted. Yeah, and to legitimize their point of view and how the present ought to be. Yeah. It goes either way. Like I said at the beginning, I didn't vote for him. <laughs> but, I, you know, despite all this, I still love Aragorn. He's a great character in the fiction of Middle-earth. I agree. And honestly, I could talk about that all day, but it's probably time for us to move into the smithy.
Welcome to the Smithy, where we each forge a rating for this movie after we share an epic moment or feature from the film. Jack, would you like to tell us your epic moment or feature and then give us a rating from 1 to 10 Narsils, the sword that was reforged? Ah, yes. Why, of course. There were a lot of epic scenes in this movie. It's true. Very epic film. There, there are a few very goofy scenes that I almost took as my epic moment. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to have to settle on when Pippin lights the torch at Gondor. Very nice. Despite his oath to the steward, he breaks it, he lights it, and we get this epic montage of seeing the torch get lit in the distance and then other torches set on different mountain ridges, seeing it and lighting their own and just you seeing for miles and miles this these signals being lit. And it is just so sick. It's so cool. That's also where we see that there are people who, I guess, jobs are literally just to live on these mountains and little huts and look out for the beacons to be lit and then light their own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a hell of a job. It's really cool. It is such an epic scene. It it really captures your attention, and it kind of made the, my hair stand on end a bit. Yeah, it was really deserving of an epic moment. So it's got to get one. And there it is. Mm-hmm. I believe you. No, this movie is pretty darn good. It is chock full of content there's so much content it's a lot of movie it could have been longer we watched the theatrical version uh i'm sure the extended version is a lot better (laughs) not that i'm bashing this but there it's so complicated and cool that there's so much more i want to see yeah we just didn't have 50 hours to watch the extended cut Yes, I'm willing to spend those 50 hours at some point doing that. Yeah. Because I like what I have already been provided so much. I don't feel like I was missing a ton, a little bit, but I want more of it. Well, that's a good thing. Yeah, that is a good thing. (laughs) This movie, taking into account that it is uh, completely groundbreaking, nothing like it, might ever be made again and it's just so iconic and amazing i'm probably gonna give it nine out of ten nice because it's not the extended version that's fair (laughs) and uh yeah i'm gonna see this again who knows how many times how many times can you watch this in your entire life uh, due to the extended duration, maybe two or three times. <laughs> you only have so many hours in the day. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Very nice. How about you, Chelsea? What's your epic moment or feature? And then you're rating from one to ten Narsils. Well, let me tell you. Please do. <laughs> I want to highlight Frodo's cousin, Pippin. Very nice. Nice. Um, As the archetype of the sacred fool. Yes. So Pippin is kind of a buffoon. He's a simple guy. And I believe he, Gandalf calls him a fool of a toque. It's true. He's kind of a simple guy, a true hobbit in that way. Uh, he just wants to enjoy the simple pleasures in life. Um, and he's extremely curious, 
which is actually not Hobbit-like. That's more of his archetypal nature as the sacred fool. So he can be easy to overlook or it can be easy to think of him as kind of a lowly character or something. But in his status as the sacred fool, he actually blunders into things that are really important to the story. And he's kind of a catalyst for a lot of major battles and events that happen. <laughs> he causes a lot of deaths is what you're saying. <laughs> uh, yeah, he, um, I mean, in the original, in the first movie, he causes them to be overrun with orcs. And Leading to the senseless death of many orcs. Actually, it's goblins, right? Goblins, yeah. And orcs together, but it's mainly goblins. And ends up in Gandalf's death, but then Gandalf is reborn as a stronger being. He's like the... Uh, Pippin is like the classic trickster. Wow, good point. Yeah. And he finds the Palantir in this movie and causes the whole issue with Sauron knowing that there's like a hobbit out there, but then he ends up causing the entire reason why Sam and Frodo could get through Mordor. Because if he didn't do that, they wouldn't have needed to go to Gondor or have the battle there or been in the right place to create the distraction at the Black Gate for Sam and Frodo to be able to go through Mordor un mostly unhindered. Wow. <laughs> so he's actually... A major player in this story. He's and a real Loki type. Exactly. And so I thought he deserved a little highlight. Or a long one. Um, <laughs> Maybe after this watch through, I'll actually be able to tell the difference between Merry and Pippin. Yeah, I'm not going to hold my breath. Um, but yeah, I'm. this is an epic tale. Oh, we said it before, but so much care and attention went into every level of this movie from the acting to the locations the set design the costumes being true to the text as much as possible in a movie that's an adaptation and um keeping true to those core themes it's a masterpiece the whole trilogy is and so i'm gonna give it a 10 out of 10 for the trilogy wow very nice and uh, what they tried to accomplish and the fact that it was even able to be made is kind of amazing. True. So, yeah, 10 out of 10. It's not perfect, but it it's a pretty awesome film. Oh, 10 out of 10 Narsils. Excuse me. Thank you. It is not without flaw, but it is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> hey, this is a completely subjective rating system. Yeah. But what about you, Jamie? What's your epic moment or feature and your rating out of one to ten narsils yeah, don't be so covetous with your opinion jamie <laughs> i won't be and i'm glad you asked my epic moment we're we're going uh, on the mary and pippin train the characters who i feel like get the least love but i'm gonna say my epic moment is when mary is asking theoden how he can Help out with the war effort. How he can fight. And Theoden's like, nah, you're a hobbit. You just stay back here. And 
you know, you might get overtaken and killed, or you might survive, but it doesn't matter. There's nothing you can do. And rides off. And Mary's just standing there like, I've tried everything I can. I don't want to just leave. He said, like, I can't just sit here while my friends are out there fighting and do nothing. I think that was Mary. <laughs> that might have been Pippin. One of them said that. They both said it at different times. Yeah. And Mary was dressed in battle armor. Yeah, that's right. Mary's in fucking armor. Like, he's ready to go. Theoden won't give him that respect. And he's having this, like, thing where all the horses are going by. And suddenly what happens? An arm reaches down from a horse. Eowyn pulls him up into her saddle. Yeah. And it's like, you can ride with me. And Mary's just like, my lady. (laughs) And they're like going in the battle like a knight and her squire. It's so amazing. And that's kind of the role that Mary fulfills. Like all this, this whole journey they've been on, he's been kind of along for the ride, right? He's helping out Frodo and Sam and he's like, he doesn't leave the Shire being very brave. We meet him stealing carrots from Farmer Maggot's farm. Yeah. He is a part of all these other things where he has very little control over what's going on. He manipulates things, or he, like, moves the plot along in his own ways. But in this moment, he gets this, like, feeling of somebody, a, a human is going to accept me and, like, take me along and we're going to fight together. And Eowyn's about to get fucking murdered by the Witch King. He stabs the Witch King in the thigh or in the calf. Yeah. And then Eowyn murders him and they tag-teamed him. And it was awesome. So that's my epic moment. I I love that. I love their friendship. I'm so happy that was your moment. I could watch a movie that is just them being buds. That would be fine. Oh, my God. I'm into it. <laughs> I'm into it as well. Also, that scene where she swoops him up and he says, my lady was definitely an awakening for a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. So with all that in mind, I am going to give, I think I'm going to follow Chelsea's example and rate the entire trilogy as a 10 out of 10. I am a lifelong fantasy fan. But I believe that if it were not for the Lord of the Rings, I would not have had the kind of reintroduction to fantasy in my early 20s, like for these movies that led to us making this podcast now. Nice. Like Conan was our archetype for fantasy movies, but the Lord of the Rings is really a very special narrative in my heart. And it means so much to me. I got so into it after we saw these movies. We, Chelsea and I, were like preparing for our wedding, which we did in fantasy garb. Yep. We were building or we were making our own wedding outfits while like watching the movies and the special features and stuff. It is just such a definitive moment for me seeing these films in the theaters and then watching them many, many times since then. It was fun dressing up as an elf and a ranger for our wedding. Yeah, (laughs) it was awesome. And uh, yeah, I I think that as a holistic experience, this is one of the greatest experiences in both fantasy and all filmmaking of all time because of the care that went into crafting the world and the attention to detail that the costumers and the people at Weta 
and the actors put into this and like really like lived in these roles yeah. and in this world. And it's just fucking rad and I love it. I love also that it created a real world fellowship between the actors. I know they get together every once in a while to reconnect and keep the fellowship alive. And I think that's pretty cool. Didn't they all get tattoos together too? They do. Yeah. They all have a, uh, a fellowship tattoo. Yeah. yeah that's pretty love cool. that. So yeah, uh, I think for me, 10 out of 10 as a holistic experience as a movie, I think I'll give return of the King a nine out of 10, especially because the, multiple endings i do feel like they might have been able to find a way to wrap up the film a little bit cleaner it is a little jarring to have all the the jumps to different endings but whatever it's a complex movie telling a complex story with a lot of moving parts it makes sense yeah but as always a 10 out of 10 experience talking with you guys as well about this series that i love so so much absolutely mhm and i think that'll pretty much do it for us here on another Big episode of Swords and Satire. I know this is going to be a long one. But it's a great way to start off the new year. It is. It is. Make sure to tune in next week when we continue our discussion of another fantasy series that we are loving so, so much with The Witcher Season 2 on our Satire TV mini episodes. But until then... You can always head on the social media and follow us at Swords and Satire on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Keep up with the show, get in touch with us, and check out the memes that I make for every episode we do. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I always love seeing those. Of course, I follow us too, so I get uh, the first notification. But um, besides that, if you want to be a supporter of the show... You could head over to patreon.com slash swords and satire, of course, and uh, join one of our tiers. There's uh, several different tiers to fit your budget if you have the means. And we would really appreciate it. It helps us keep the torches lit here at Castle Satire. helps us keep the show going. And you get to vote on a movie we watch each month. And you get access to a ton of great bonus episodes which we release each month. Wow, that's all really great. But if you don't have a few extra coins to toss to your favorite podcasters, why not go out and celebrate the the end of this perfect trilogy as covered by your favorite podcasters with your friends and family? Go watch the Lord of the Rings movies together. And when you're all in your old age after the series is done... You can listen to our <laughs> review of the series and enjoy it as a family. There you go. <laughs> or a fellowship. Ooh, even that, better. That's a great life hack, Jack. Yes. Well, until next time. Hail, Hail Crom! Crom!